And we are joined now with the Jiu-Jitsu potato himself, Mr. Ben Robson. How you doing, my friend? Yeah, very well, very well. <laughs> I love Thanks that, beyond me. everything. I think that's the most wonderful like, Jiu-Jitsu nickname ever. Where did that even come from? Um, it started off like in the gym, just like... Um, like a few of the guys found it hard to like submit me with stuff and they were like, oh, he's just got a spud head. Spud head. And, uh, <laughs> just like giant cauliflower ears and a fat head. And yeah, and then it started like just, the nickname started as spud. And uh, the more I got into it, so I was like, I probably should have something that's like a bit more like towards me. And I started saying it like hashtagging like spud jitsu um, for how I was rolling and competing. And then it kind of just stuck then. I mean, to be fair, bachesh has got, um... oh, what's he got? Yeah, so, Bichesha um, literally means I'm like chubby cheek because he was a fat, fat kid when he walked in yeah, the gym. Yeah, Nutella, they call him. Nutella because <laughs> he's a bit fat and soft. I mean, you know, I take it as a compliment. I think that's all right, to be fair. So what's going on in your world then? So we've had a bit of an interesting one before this started. So your training might need to take a bit of a, a detour. But prior to that, what's going on regards to your training at the minute? What's, is it sneaky, sneaky things afoot? Is it all, you know, many S&C focus? What's your training look like at the minute? So at the moment, it's, um, still managed to get some sparring in. Um, my housemate's a blue belt. Um, we've got Matt here, so we've been able to do some stuff here and then get a few bits in with the guys. Uh, we got the elite status from UKBJ. Yeah, so hey, love it. Some bits in with that. Um, yeah, but it's, it's weird. Like, we're just doing loads of sparring, lots of drilling, like working on a few areas. Um, just, but it's strange without competition to focus on that. Um, but then also using it as like, time to focus on like, my S&C side of things. Um, so something I preach on a lot to like some of my clients is like getting them to have an off season. And I think everyone's been forced to have an off season when there's no competitions. So I was like, I'll be smart with this and just trying to like work towards PB in a few lifts and getting stronger and fitter in a few areas. Um, so that's been the main focus. Um, like a lot of like kind of general preparation stuff ready for if anything comes out the blue, like an event pops up that I'm just ready to go then. Now, it's interesting in regards of your S&C, the way you focus that, because again, I believe it's, was, I was on your website not too long ago, it's evidence-based, um, oh, I had it, I had it a minute ago, yeah. I had it ready to so, go, but yeah. Evidence-based practice. That's the one. But yeah, yeah. is your jiu-jitsu in a similar kind of practice in the same sort of sense? So the way you trial and error certain things your S&C, would you do the similar way in your own sort of game and development in that sense? Yeah, 100%. Like, um, I think I focus on stuff that's like... Um, I don't want to teach anything or do anything that wouldn't work. And I'm a very like a numbers driven guy. And um, the way I think of stuff with my training is like, what does a certain thing have the strongest correlation to? So if you were thinking of say jujitsu, it's like, what's the strongest correlation from playing guard. And there's like, it's probably not the strongest correlation to actually submitting people. There's probably a stronger correlation to sweep into top. And then once you're on top, there's a strong correlation to passing the guard than there is to submitting someone from being in or outside their guard. So just like working on that kind of thing. So like what are the numbers telling me is like, what's the strongest correlation lean to and focusing on that. Um, it's kind of how I approach it. So with that being said, then is it more of a percentage sort of thing or is it like Pareto's law sort of thing in the sense of you're doing only most of your game is 20% of what you use with 8% success or is it, you know what I mean? Is it more a case of your examining the sort of probability when you're in a position or you're doing a more of a high percentage game as an overall whole. You see what I mean? Um, yeah, try to go, I guess, more for a higher percentage game. It's like if you're, like I used the example of guard, if you're playing guard, like you'll have a higher percentage of success by looking for a sweep versus just only looking for the submission. 
And then obviously sometimes then you have like, you look for the, the sweep and that leads to a submission. But on the whole, if you took, say, you watched the Worlds and you took every black belt match and you looked at everyone playing guard and you looked at what's the strongest correlation, was it either going to the back from guard, going to top from guard or submitting, that probably going from bottom to top is probably going to be kind of the most successful thing. So it's kind of working on that as a tactic while still working on the other areas as well. Um, but trying to play it by like kind of by the numbers is how I focus it more. Um, this, sorry, I thought you finished. So it's okay. uh, <laughs> so quite interesting that sort of ways of sort of going about. Cause again, when you're very sort of numbers orientated with jujitsu being quite ambiguous, I want to say some sense of, again, there's so many like different loads, so many intricacies. It's quite hard to break down and be specific and be sort of measurable. Cause again, you've got like, for example, with um, SNC, you've got certain lifts. You can measure things very like accurately and like precisely. Whereas, okay, is that percent, is that sweep or submission low percentage? Or have I just not done it right? Have I not added a certain element? And again, a sort of reviewing certain elements in itself. And with that all being said, then it's, there's a few sort of areas I sort of want to go with this in the sense of your game. So you'll see, okay, this is what the stats were for the last worlds. Do you then change your game entirely around that or do you almost predict what's going to come next or do you work on what you've already got in the sense there? So you've got your new stimulus sort of tested results from what happened, your game in itself. Is it trying to fill in the gaps or is it trying to, you know, predict what's next? Um, I think it's kind of like what is most successful, what suits like myself or suits the individual and then what reactions does your opponent give you off that? Um, this is a, it's one of those ones where you have to just like um, you always have I guess like anomalies in data mm. so it's like saying like okay the strongest correlation is to go from bottom to top but you're always going to have an anomaly in that like there is going to be that submission from the bottom so it's kind of just bearing it in mind whilst like looking for that route to success um, I guess the way I think about it um, so like for my game I'm never like going to try and mold my game too much around someone else from say the data from the world if you looked at okay there's more sweeps but it's like okay is me devoting a lot of time to this one specific submission from guard necessary when i'm actually lacking in other areas um so it's the same as like snc it's like a lot of people like oh i want to get um stronger at like stand up and close guard okay i'm gonna do like gonna wrap a gi around something and i'm gonna just pull a kettlebell up all the time I'm sure like, it does have its place, but could you focus on something that's going to get you more bang for your buck um, in elsewhere? It's like, I guess, the biggest thing with it. Well, this is another sort of topic in itself, being overly sport-specific. We're sort of dot around bits and bobs because this is always fun. You see those sort of Instagram bits and bobs. Now, with your personal strength and conditioning training, what is your split between standard functional patterns versus sport-specific stuff? like your traditional, I don't know, squat bench, deadlift or whatever other variants you like to use, then they also <laughs> gee pull-ups and whatever else you like as well, which is a bit of fun. Um, so, yeah, so for that, it's like, um, it would depend. There's classic academic Ooh, Love it, here. love that. It depends. Um, so, obviously, the closer you get to a specific event, then the more catered towards maybe sport-specific movements you'd have, and the further out from that, you probably have a more generalized thing. So, um talking about where i had like a kind of general preparation like kind of this forced off season of just focusing on focusing on these compound movements and building that up so um it's hard to say what my like split would be like everything has a 
um, I guess within my, my own program and any, like anyone's I program for is there's a strong split between like a squat pattern, a hinge pattern, a pull pattern, a push pattern, um, and then a few of the variants with that and then focus on kind of like single leg modalities. I don't throw too many specific things in of like key pull-ups and that. Um, I'll put them in maybe to keep things a little bit more interesting to stop kind of the monotony of just squat, bench, deadlift, clean, snatch, um, things like that. Um, but it's not too specific. Um, and usually people would throw those in because they want to work their grip, but they then don't understand what areas of their grip that they're actually needing. Are they a gi athlete? Are they a no gi athlete? What's the competition they're focusing on? Um, so it's like, if you think about the gi, you actually have like a more of a, I guess like a hold where you have like just your fingers holding. So actually you'd be probably better off just doing some static holds or farmers carries. You could use the gi grips then, but then it's not necessarily the same. And it's more of like, I guess like a hold and a little bit of a pinch of your hand. Whereas like, I guess a pinch, pinch grip is probably the best way to think of it is like trying to close your fingers towards your um, palm is the easiest way of like that pinch grip. But then nogi athletes then have like a squeeze grip where it's like their index finger trying to go towards their thumb as the movement pattern. So then they'd actually be better off doing things where they're kind of doing fat bar grip work then with that because it mimics the same as holding a like a wrist so it, it depends massively um i would say it's more biased towards if i had to be forced to give it a percentage work then i would say it's maybe about three to five percent depending on how far out someone is or how far i am out and it would be more to cater towards keeping things interesting and i would focus on other movements um over kind of specific things like that the nature of these questions, I'm glad they should start with it depends because they're one word sort of yes, oh, it's a 50 50 split thing. Oh, excuse me, wait a minute. <laughs> that's a word there somewhere. But no, it's really interesting the way you're breaking it down to the sort of mechanics because, again, there's quite a few. Um, who is it? I think Ross Edgley had a thing about that in his art resilience book, not that book, recommendation for everyone. Um, next comes to, anyway, <laughs> is, um, it's interesting as well because when it comes to these sort of style of questions, which you probably would get quite a few of that okay i need to keep it so sport specific so overkill but then it's breaking down to what that means and then the actual mechanics being used there in regards of also exertion because this is where it gets quite tricky as well and the way you sort of rep it out because again if you're doing sort of standard sort of strength conditioning programming x amount of weight for x amount of reps in this sort of tempo whereas if you have a, a role with someone it's like pretty far like you don't really know what time's going away don't know the intensity it's all very all over the place it's quite hard to keep that specific in itself so one common thing I personally feel is a bit of a recurring thing with my own programming is the sort of the FOMO that okay, I've made my nice, pretty, nice, pretty um, strength conditioning program, but there's something oh, I'm not getting enough of these. And some Joe Rogan comes out with, okay, I need to get my neck rolls in or whatever I've got. Some absolute nonsense or this, that, and they're missing out. What point do you feel the need to review? And then, I don't know, how far out are your programs as such? Is it like four, eight, 12 weeks sort of block bills and then reestablish the whole thing? Or is it like week by weeks? Would you like to review the sort of program you've made? So I usually go by like a mesocycle, so a small like block, um, like I'd call them like blocks. And like I usually go about four to six weeks is what I would like establish as a block. Maybe three, um, we'd drop them down a little bit and then review it and adjust. But they're never massive adjustments. Um, so it's kind of like, if you think of it like a, you have like a macro cycle, so um, potentially like a fight camp in MMA where you have like 
12 weeks building up and then you have your like kind of like smaller cycles then within that like your meso cycles and then like your micro cycles would be your session your your day your week um so i, I like to break down like those blocks into I say three to six weeks but it's usually about four weeks um and then we'll kind of move it but it's usually moving um they're very similar they're not like drastic changes like we don't like completely switch it up every four weeks with that um but i very much think people do get that fomo and they get this plan they start doing it they do it a week and then they see someone else doing something they're like oh you know i'll chuck that on to something or i'll place this where sometimes you actually just need to like plan the work and work the plan and then see where you get rather than chopping and changing it because you don't actually know what is working for you then and that that is a huge point i mean that in itself okay my plan was working how long have you done it for i haven't started yet i mean this is kind of half of it and if they don't say that they probably haven't admitted it and that's that's kind of the rest of it now regards of the programming for snc in that sense do you do money program for your training in jiu-jitsu in the sense of your intensity of rounds your specific kind of rounds you're doing and that same kind of i don't know intricacy yeah no um this is something that me and like my coach have worked on um is that like there's me and him are the kind of the main elite guys from our gym and we were the same and we kind of like to start with it would be like we have maybe like three days a week where it's double day sparring and then um the other days like we'll have single day hard sparring but then we're doing snc on those days Whereas now we've flipped it a little bit. So Thursdays is usually a very hard day for me. So I'll actually try and have like, um, I'll do some compound lifts in the morning, spar hard midday, and then moderate sparring in the evening. So that's a very high day. Um, whereas I think a lot of people will struggle where they're like, okay, I'll, I won't lift on these days because I'm doing a lot of sparring and I'll lift heavy on this in-between day and then spar hard in the evening. And the actual like overall like workload then it's just the same. So you never have like highs and lows. So there's never like, I'm training very hard, but I'm recovering just as hard. And then with that in mind, then we've started to pre- like periodize our number of rounds within a week. So over a, we try and base it Monday to Friday and the weekends, uh, see how you feel. But we're aiming for about 66 minute rounds in a week. So it's about close to 12 rounds a day. Um, but that could mean that, say, Monday, we actually do 13 rounds. But on Tuesday, we're feeling pretty beat up. So we only do eight. And we kind of like, the goal isn't to then get loads in one, on like one day. We try and spread them out evenly and have some days where it's kind of more rounds and then the other days a little bit less. Um, so we're kind of like aiming for an overall number of rounds. And then myself, then, I try and keep track of the kind of how I'm feeling with those rounds. So it's very much an arbitrary value, but um, is using an RPE scale for my rounds. So this means that I can get like an overall like workload for that week. And then over time I can build up a chronic workload and then reflect back on my acute workload. So well, that is basically what I look to do is say within, I'll use a five minute round as an example, just to make the maths easy is out of 10, how hard was that five minute round? So it fits with my coach and it's a competition round and it's balls to the wall. That's probably going to be about a nine, a nine or a 10. So if we say nine, okay, so that's uh, you times that by five. So five minutes sparring, nine out of 10 hardness, that gives us a number of 45. Okay. So that's for one round, but I could do it over, say I've done 30 minutes, 30 minutes of sparring. I've done five, six minute rounds. And that session was 
competition sparring, just me and my coach, nine out of 10 for that. So times 30 by nine gives us 270 as a value for that day. And then, or that session. And then you get that over the week, you divide all the week by seven and you have like your weekly average. And then over time, if you're like, I'm feeling really beat up this week and really run down, you can look back and maybe your weekly average was normally 300, but now you're at 450 for this week. It's like, okay, let's actually bring it down a little bit and have a little bit of an easier week the following week, just so we're not overkilling it. Um, And that's kind of how I approach it for kind of measuring my intensity. It's just that like arbitrary value. It's not like the most accurate and you could get way more data, but no one's come out with a very accurate heart rate monitor that you can wear during sparring or some way of calculating VO2 whilst rolling. So it's like, you can't get a lot of data with it. So actually having this arbitrary value that isn't the most accurate, but it's very consistent is then a good measure of um, like how your, how your intensity is throughout a week. And like one thing I like with it as well is that use the RP scale and it's how you feel on that day. If you're smart and you, after you finish your session, you fill out your training log. It's like you then can see that however you're feeling on that day is a ra- an accurate representation of how hard it is. So one day, a nine out of 10 might be like full competition rounds, balls to the wall sparring, but then you've lifted heavy. You haven't slept much. Your nutrition's not been on point. A nine out of 10 then might actually just be some moderate rounds, but that one day you're feeling super pooped, but then you can then like gauge it then off that because your weekly average will go up then and you can keep track of it and just um, bring it down as is needed. That answer is so perfect. I love that. Again, because it's an interesting concept because again, when it comes to taking over the weekly RPEs with the average, like if you have a session, like how was your session on Tuesday? Like, I don't remember. But <laughs> you sort of think, okay, day by day, thinking, oh, that was a seven, that's an eight, oh, that's a four, this, that, and it adds up. You realize, oh, actually, that sort of light bulb moment. Oh, this is why I feel so run down and so beaten up. That's probably why. But no, it's really interesting sort of in itself. So that's more from a sort of performance and exertion point of view. Now, regards of your performance from a technical point of view, are you one to also make notes and sort of, not necessarily between rounds, but after a sparring session, say, okay, this is what I did right, this is what I did wrong, from that side of things. Because again, as much as it is the physical aspect of recovery and also measuring your exertion, also, you, again, your development. Like, what do you do in that sense of things? So that then I use like a, um, just like a training diary. There's like, there's loads of fancy stuff you can do. And I think everyone likes to throw stuff out there and think they need to get the fanciest thing. But there's a lot of stuff within like coaching science is just like a diary, like a journal, just, okay, today did this. And like, I use it where I've got like at the top, just how many rounds I did in the RP of those. And then underneath is like notes on that session. So just, yeah, hard session today, competition rounds. My focus today was to look at, um, say this guard pass I'm working with these certain grips and did it work? Yes or no. Who did it work against? What setup did I use? And just like a few notes on what my focus was, how I felt it went. And then just like an overall kind of, um, I guess summary of how the session was from a technical standpoint. That's really interesting as well. Almost like a Marcus Aurelius kind of style sort of journal. Sort of, okay, this is what I thought. This is what I did. And this is how I'm sort of going to, review it as such now regards of reviewing what you've already written so again i can see doing this every day but what point do you look back on what you've already done so would you ever go back maybe the whole week as such is it a case of oh what did we do half guard it's just a case of a reference just for you to be accountable i want to say what what do you do it for in that sense 
as in what do, what do I do it for? Or like, in the in or, sense of the journal, your performance wise, how often are you reflecting back on what you've done? Or is it more a case of trying to help retain what you've done or be more accountable? What do you feel you get from journaling it in that sense? Uh, more, it's just like it frees up your mind a little bit rather than having it like constantly having to think, what did I do? And like all this kind of like decision paralysis then is like you kind of like put it on paper. You don't have to worry about it then. I try and reflect on it back on like a, a Sunday evening or something just because that way it's like, you can look back at it and go into it and just be like, okay, what was this week like? Okay, next week, what's the focus going to be? So kind of, um, I'll give a shout out to Andy Marshall, the villain barbell coach. Um, he's put out some like great stuff lately. He's kind of had a, a, a research on his social media. And uh, he always says like, what are you doing on Sunday to mean that Monday's easier? And I always think that that's a good approach to take is like, and it doesn't have to be like, I'm going to do all of Monday's work on Sunday night, like take the rest, enjoy yourself. But like sometimes actually just like, what do I need to get done this week? And how can I plan it out best? Um, and that's, he's talking more from like a work and a goal mm. point of view, but, um, and I guess this is kind of like a goal, but I think sometimes like if you are an athlete and you're striving to get better at something and work towards big things, then actually just taking an hour just to read over what you've done this week and what are you going to aim for the next week is like, it's a small sacrifice for a lot in return. Now that in itself brings me on to quite an interesting topic. So there's the whole thing of like, I understand what we meant by that in the sense of like meal prep, things like that. Again, like getting yourself set up, ready to go. But in the same breath, we said about doing Monday's work on the Sunday, you get the habit of people not being able to rest. Now, how do you find with actually sitting down and having, if you're not at least active rest, because again, the whole sort of, I need to be doing more. David Goggins is like running a thousand miles, you know, with no skin left on his feet. I need to do something. I can't sit here. <laughs> How do you find switching off like in your world? Um, yeah. So this is actually something that I, I myself am very guilty of running like a coaching business, teaching jiu-jitsu, training jiu-jitsu, and then trying to do a PhD as well. I'm very much like work, 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 trying to get it all in. So actually like trying to take time off is like something that's like very difficult for me. But um, I think it's like, it is really important. I really do value it. And um, I always think of it as like, I'm just going to do something that I enjoy. So I always try and get something on the weekend. And that's usually like getting outdoors or doing something. I think um, it's very difficult for people to do sometimes in that world of, I always need to be doing more. Um, but it's like just trying to remember that taking this time off the gas pedal means that you can push it harder tomorrow. So sometimes like, taking a weekend off doing hard sparring so that when Monday's comp class comes around, you can put 100% into it and get more out of it. Um, it's the same as like, you don't have to lift weights every day because if you know you take these rest days, you can put more weight on the bar after you've had those rest, like those couple of rest days is the way I always think of it like that. It's just, I'm taking it easier now so I can push harder than I could have tomorrow. Um, See, that's an interesting, I like that sort of way of thinking about it because, again, it gets the whole guilt of I'm not doing enough, I need to keep on doing more of this, everyone's doing this, that, and the other. But again, being able to recharge and then, then re exert again. Now, when it comes to your time off in itself, is it are you more of an outdoors kind of person? Again, you try and get away off social media and sort of disappear, or you sort of, I don't know, what are your like normal outside of jiu jitsu and work and everything else hobbies? What sort of stuff do you like to do when you're not, you know, <laughs> living the spud life? 
And yeah, um, usually it's like, yeah, getting outdoors. I took up open water swimming a couple of years ago. So like try and get in the sea or something like that. Like doesn't mean I'm going to go and swim like Ross Edgley and do 10K every day. But like I'll get in and maybe do a couple of kilometers if I wanted to be active or if I'm not going to be active at all. Usually it's like finding somewhere that I'll just go and take a sunset picture or something like some is like really cheesy and stuff like that. But just like actually just getting out and getting away from everything. Um, I'm very much around like computers and books and everything all the time is like sometimes going somewhere where there's no signal is really nice. Um, and yeah, I'm very much like, uh, doesn't matter the weather. I'll try and get out as well. Like I've come like I kind of had a realization, um, during the first lockdown, I was like, bad weather is subjective. So I don't Ooh, care how I like crap, that a lot. I like that how, a lot. <laughs> how crap the weather is. I was like, I can always dry myself off. I can always have a warm shower after. So I, I'll just get out. You know? That's fucking spot. I'm gonna get pneumonia for that. It's <laughs> 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 subjective. <laughs> Just, yeah, no. The immune system is absolutely fried. But now I like that. I like that a lot. Now, when it comes to your sort of mindset and your guidance for this kind of thing, we've got to where you are now. Where do you feel you've been influenced as such? Is it an internal sort of problem solving? Has it been coaches? Has it been things you've read? Where have you found your main sort of, I don't know, your style as such? Um, I guess for my mindset, it's like stuff I've read and just like I've always tried to surround myself with people in certain areas that are always doing better than I am in that area mm. so like I think strong mentors and good reading I kind of like went through a stage of reading a lot of like stoic philosophy and just that kind of like how to think out or think away from yourself um, about the situation is something that's helped a lot and then just very strong mentors be that authors of books I've read or people that I've surrounded myself by um and usually like it's just conversations with people that i think have helped like i'm sure you've picked up a lot from having guests on podcasts it's just like speaking to these people and understand how they work is usually how it gives stuff to you um like kind of you get a lot out of what people are saying and their way of thinking and then just um my dad as well as like always had like he'll just come out with like a, a gem of something um and i'm just like oh, i really like that so yeah just surrounding myself by good people um and good books is the the best way um and critically thinking as well i think being it like i know it, like being able to critically think and get into a point in that is has helped me get to where i am but understanding how to critically think was um a journey in itself to get me to here um and just being able to like i guess like take yourself away from the situation and i think going back to that kind of stoic mindset of it all of just like not reacting emotionless think about it and then act on it um so that's that's going to be an interesting one then so what is it you're critically thinking about and what how do you manage the the process of critically thinking about certain things so what does it mean to you by that um so i guess like not reacting on impulse and kind of taking a second to respond so if you use the elon musk podcast with joe rogan is Joe asks Elon a question. Elon never responds immediately. He always takes a second to think and thinking about that. And then also like um, thinking about say your actions in a scenario. So um, sometimes it's like you can act on impulse and then reflect on it is a way like, so say someone cuts you up in traffic, you honk your horn, you call them every name under the sun, but then you think, why have I just done that? Like they just tried getting out in traffic. It's not ruined my day. We didn't have a car crash. Um, it's not the end of the world. So um, just thinking about it like that. And like, I always think of it as well is like, 
taking myself away from me of thinking it is like if I was a, a third party viewing what my reactions are in this situation, would I think that is appropriate or am I being out of order or like the flip rolls in putting it in the other person's shoes. So um, someone kicks off at me is like thinking, why have they kicked off at me? Have I done something or are they, are they going through something and they're acting on impulse and it isn't actually a reflection of what they feel or think about me? Um, so I thought you, sorry, I thought you finished uh, before I started and there's a weird little <laughs> bit between. I'm trying to think when we speak now and get all conscious about that. It's fine. But yeah, it's an interesting um, premise this because again, I think it was um, there in Brown's books is this concept that the whole thing of he who without sin cast the first stone is sort of thing that, okay, if I was in that position, Am I possible of that same reaction? Say, for example, like you said there, if I was cut up, so if I cut someone up and they got annoyed, am I my right to say I wouldn't get annoyed if I was them? I think mm, I probably would get pretty thing as well. And again, being able to embody what someone else would be going through, empathizing and sort of sympathizing. And it is interesting to be able to remove yourself and just take away the, the ego side of it. I will caveat though, when you said about Elon Musk taking his gaps between, his is like a computer processing thing. It's very ominous. I don't like it. It's a dead silence. And it's so like, okay. Yes. No. <laughs> Some really awkward one words. Like, okay, what does that mean? Like, I'm not sure. It's oh, I hate it. <laughs> yeah. I get the sort of comment. The sorry, the um, premise of like thinking about what you're saying, but more not just rushing off of okay. Oh, they said something. I need to reply straight away with this kind of response. And actually, wait a minute. What is meant by what's being said? What they're going through? And um, I had um, Wendy Miller on my podcast ages ago. A UK MMA legend, all this sort of thing. And he was saying about self-defense that one of his um, mates in the pub were really annoyed with someone, like stepped in, got, got in his face or whatever. And he said to him, that bloke's wife's going through like horrible chemo. All the kids are going through this, that and the other. So really, he said, no, I made that up. But he could have been that and you'd have felt really bad. Now, why, what's to say he's not going through these sort of things? Now, if you put yourself in that kind of situation, ah, it's a bit excessive, but I get the point. <laughs> it's a bit over. Yeah, yeah <laughs> no. Yeah, and I think it's the same as well, like critically thinking about... Um, and given like the time we're in with kind of um the covid stats and everything is like actually like being able to take yourself away from like ah oh, this has come in these stats are here and actually going okay where have these stats been derived from what did they use what sample size how are they basing this off and like it may be easier for me and i may be kind of um speaking from the wrong side of it is that like obviously being in academia you have to think like that a lot and think like what is this journal telling me what did they use how is that going to impact what i'm doing so you have to think very critically as an academic but i think understanding how to think critically can help people um within i guess like life training jiu-jitsu especially when they watch matches is like why has Tommy Langacker set these two grips and angled this way. And then you look, okay, you got a triangle off that, go back. Okay. What did he do before he set these grips up to then create this? And it's like, I think it, understanding critical thing is like a very good skill to have. Now there's a book I think would be interesting if you've not already read it is um, the structure of scientific revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. And it's like all about basically breaking down. If you haven't heard the word paradigm a thousand times, you're going to, Oh, this, this book is exhausting. <laughs> but it's really interesting. And the same sort of premises behind, um, okay, when you're talking about case size and data and this sort of thing, okay, this, that, and then what causality, this sort of thing. And again, about deducing things and inducing all this kind of stuff, it gets beyond exhausting. And this is where you've got to caveat things and really test it. If you can't test it, it can't be 
oh, why is it falsable? Like it becomes a whole thing. But and again, regards of what you're saying there about the whole setups, the case by case thing, and again, the the layers upon layers upon layers of what has gone on to then create this sort of setup, this final product as such. And I think this is even more important from a coaching role as such for you to have that kind of mindset to be able to, I don't know, change the way you articulate yourself and the way you want to explain these concepts and techniques. And if you just throw techniques at people, they'll sort of think, okay, they're all just this, that, there, and over there. Whereas if you get, okay, if you get these grips and get these angles, you can distort the posture and this, everything else. So when it comes to your coaching on that sort of <laughs> nice little tangent, um, how would you like to coach, say like beginners, what is your, I don't know, reference points for trying not to overload them with the knowledge you've got, but also help them understand to the best of your ability in the sort of sessions. Like what sort of reference points have you got for coaching as such? No, that's a really good question. Um, so I very much like to take a very principle-based approach, um, especially with, um, with Jiu-Jitsu and S&C and um, everything. It's just very much principle-based. So like I use Jiu-Jitsu as an example to teaching beginners is um, try and get them to understand the core principle, like at least one core principle of what I'm trying to say. Um, and then maybe like give them an example with that. So it's the same as like, if you were in school and you're doing like maths or long division or something, you get told what it is and how it works. And then you get given a series of problems to solve. And then once you solve the problems and you get them right and you understand that doing it this way gives you this result and then why you get that result, then you understand what you've been taught. And I think it's the same with jujitsu. So um, one thing I like to use, so I use guard pass as an example, is um, I'll always tell them, I try and give them analogies that are like easy to focus on. Um, I think um, you'll, it'll depend on them, their sporting background, but beginners typically, they don't have a very good idea of like internalizing analogies, like trying to tell them something. So you have to, to give them like, something external to focus on. So with guard passing, I would tell people, um, imagine the bony bits on your, on your partner's hips, they have eyes on, okay, we're going to call this hip vision. And then you have their legs or the projection of their femur. So basically what their legs are doing, and that's the scope of their guard. And the two principles I try and get them to understand is when you're passing guard, you need at least one of these two principles and you need to narrow the scope of the guard and you need to deflect hip vision. So you need to get those eyes on the front of their hips to look away from you. So basically you need to create a blind side. So then we use an example of like the smash pass. You basically get their legs together. You've narrowed the scope of the guard and then you angle off onto the side and use your hip to keep their legs together. As soon as you start to like bunch their legs up and circle around towards their back, you've then deflected hip vision and narrowed the scope of the guard and then kind of show them that example and then explain that, you can do other guard passes then. So a leg drag, you let leg drag pass, their hips face away. They've deflected hip vision. And it's not always true. Like you could knee cut and you go through it, but then you're outside of hip vision. You're not mm -hmm. there. The eyes on the hips can't see you. So they can't play an effective guard now. So it's like kind of like trying to give them the principles and explain what that means and then give them a few examples of where this is true, then get them to situationally spar and pressure test it. And that way, then they're essentially the same as maths. They're problem solving as they go. Once they understand, okay, I couldn't get outside past his leg. How do I do that? Then they start coming with questions. And it's like, okay, if we angle this way, we can turn the knee cut back into a smash pass. And now we can deflect it vision and narrow the scope of the guard the other direction. 
So it's kind of getting them to understand some core principles and then a few examples of where that is and then just getting to pressure test it a lot and then come back with questions then and then we just build up their knowledge from there. I mean, that in itself is so important, giving them reference points. So like the sort of math analogy there, the sort of, okay, you understand how long division works and you get given these different scenarios with the same sort of formula to use, but also the factors keep changing. So you've still got the same form you can rely on. And then pressure testing it in itself is so important because that's the difference between us and like Aikido. <laughs> is the thing that actually makes yeah. it work or not. And this is the whole trial and error and everything else. And to take that a step further for devil's advocate, so you have a more advanced class then. Will you still go in concept-based to still go along with that or is it more intricacy more intricacy to then build on a specific kind of game like I'll, I'll change that question your game in itself is it very methodical very sort of okay i've got this drawn out massive flow chart this is exactly what i'm going to do or is it more concept based and you sort of fill in the gaps with the techniques you've got um so for my game i'll, I'll try and answer both questions because i actually have a good point for the more advanced and the beginners so my game is very um, I do have a lot of like more concepts. Um, something I sit down, like anyone I teach one-to-one with, especially if they're looking to compete, is I kind of do actually get them to write down a flow diagram. But I always think of get a flow diagram of what you would say is your gold standard, like jiu-jitsu. So for me, it'd be, I'd look to take down. I would pass with like mid-range guard passes, like a knee cut, a long step, um, kind of these things. And if I had to, then go into pressure passing. Um, and then once I'm past the guard, I'm looking to work through pins. So similar as like Dan and his approach of like work through a hierarchy of pins. And my ultimate goal is to get to the back and then look for a choke. Okay. And I, I always think of like looking for the choke because it doesn't matter how big or strong they are. If they have one arm, no arms, everyone's got a neck. So it's like, okay, if I can do that, then I can tap them. So it's like working through that. And then what are the predictable reactions along the way? So what, um, I guess jujitsu is very much like an argument with your body. It's like you're having an argument and you need to propose um, counter arguments to the arguments that they are giving you. So that's usually like, what are their predictable reactions and do you have a good response to that? Um, so I do have like a methodological re- approach to what I'm trying to achieve, but then also the high level you get, I'm very much, it happens so fast that I'm more thinking of um, the concepts So say guard passing, that deflect and hip vision and narrowing the scope of the guard and I don't mind what guard pass I end with. I have a few that I'm going to aim for, but I'm also just going to look to nail those two principles and fill in the blanks of whatever counter arguments that they would give me. Um, But then go back to actually how I would coach it. Um, And this is something that we've worked hard in our club to space out how we teach people. Um, And it's the more advanced guys, I would say is more concept based and very specific with what we're trying to show in the sense of like, we're not showing them, or here's this snazzy lapel grip and go through, but it's more the there's less controlled chaos and it's more open. So it's like, okay, guys, we're going to positional spar from this open guard, but you're only allowed one grip. You choose what grip you want, and then we'll come in and we'll discuss what who had success with what grip, and then we'll try and find out why they had that. And then the way we actually structure how we teach them is in like a not so much as individual class format, but how we have our um, I guess like periodizing our coaching techniques or, or coaching the techniques that we're trying to get across is we start off originally with a beginner's course. So it's like people booked on, they had a beginner's course and then it ended, we waited a little bit and then we did another one. And now we have our beginner's program where it's like continually going, but it follows the same cyclical pattern. 
And it's something that kind of like happened. The other coaches had kind of like put it in, but then me being a little bit more science driven, I was like, oh, this is very successful. Why is it successful? And it's um, so something of um, you have like meta learning. So you have like an overall view. So um, say you were to study for something in school, like an exam. The first thing that you do when you're not too sure about what it is, you read over everything. So you read over all your notes on that subject. So this is what we do with our beginners course. They go through basically what is jiu-jitsu. So we've broken it down into what we call like a chess method. So you have like your open game, which would be stand-up. And we kind of, we have dedicated stand-up lessons to that. So we were like, okay, we'll take that off the course. And then we have like middle game top, middle game bottom, which would be your guard. So guard top, guard bottom. You have end game top, end game bottom. So that would be your pins. So side control, knee on belly, mount, back. And you have then the defense to those, how to escape those. And then you have what we'd call checkmate, which is the submission. So we actually follow it where we'll start in within that and we work our whole way through. So we usually start with end game bottom, just so people get used to close contact, used to feeling like they've learned of getting out of a difficult situation. So we start with escape. So we start in the end game and then we explain, okay, this is how you'd get out of it. Or we start actually start with on top. So this is what this position is and how to do it. Then we go into this is the escape. So then people then learn how to get out of that. And then we go, how would you get here? So we go, okay, you'd go middle game top, which is passing guard. What are the concepts of passing guard? Then we're going for like the following week into um, middle game bottom. This is what playing guard is. And then we'll show some submissions at the end. And that kind of cycle repeats itself. So it's very, say, usually it's about a five-week cycle. And that five-week cycle kind of just keeps repeating over and over. But the beginners have like, um, so in kind of um, learning, you have um, a thing called space repetition. So the less you know something, the more you need to, more often you need to do it. So it's like more experienced guys don't have to like pressure test De La Hiva every week because they've done it for years. They can like dedicate a couple of weeks on it every couple of months or like they can space out further, but beginners need to do it more often. So they need to work through their pins and their escapes more often. So they have this like overview of that meta learning and it happens more frequently and the more advanced they get then. So when we go into our like, um, intermediate and advanced classes, we'll spend maybe a month, three months on a specific area and really double down on it with the idea that we're not trying to make a white belt world champion within a year. We're aiming to have like really tough black belts in six years and spending time of people spending three months on a subject and then going another three months. It's like their actual knowledge within that is going to be like a lot better. Um, and then with that, then the advanced level, we kind of, it's a weird analogy I thought of, and it's, it's really abstract and weird. So we'll dive down a rabbit hole with it, but is you have like that. So we've got those specific areas. So you think of the meta learning as an overall view. Then you have this kind of more advanced where you start to like double down in specific areas until you've got it. And I was trying to get across like what I meant by doubling down. And I was like, imagine that that first initial, what is jiu-jitsu and what is all these areas is you dig in holes. And then the more advanced you get, you fill those holes back up with knowledge. And then certain people will then become specialists in certain areas and they'll actually have holes that are overflowing. 
but then they'll have other areas that aren't quite full yet. So you'd say you'd have someone like Roger, who's like level, everything is full with knowledge. He's got fundamental, overall, very good game. Maybe certain areas might be a little bit lacking, but pretty much everything. But then you have someone like Mikey Musumeci, who is his bolo hole is bolo. mounded up and overflowing. But then his guard passing is he has knowledge in it and he understands guard passing, but it is nowhere near to where his bolo hole is. Um, now, Mikey's bolo hole has been mentioned on this podcast more than you like, but here we are. <laughs> There's a lot in, in that to break down. Let's work backwards. But one thing I like with that analogy a lot is well, the overflowing element of that, because again, that sort of fills in the, the gaps where they seem to get success. Because again, if you've got a very dominant certain game, getting success with it, it's to an extent filling gaps that you the, the, the bolo game could fill in certain gaps you're leaving out in other areas because again you're getting success yeah. and you can go on and go on and go forth when you said rabbit hole I know it was a bit literal rabbit hole but there we go <laughs> it's, it's fine um wow okay so let's play around with that um what do I begin so off the bat I like the beginning sort of course program again sort of going over very key elements breaking it down to sort of what they physically are because saying given the name of escapes positions is that and the other again it becomes very ambiguous because they're all positions they're all techniques is that and the other again I like the way you're breaking it down again the sort of building layers upon layers upon layers of the same sort of knowledge and then doubling down on certain areas in the sort of more advanced class it makes more sense because again if you it's almost like in the gym with bro splits like you <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to do um I don't know, an old bicep session for a beginner to set any other, but that's another conversation. So with... um, sorry, sorry, I'll just go on. jump in there just because like, I think that's actually a really good way if I didn't get the point across there is like if you look at people when they first start going to the gym, they don't go every day. They go twice a week, three times a week maybe. And usually what beginners will do is and will get the most bang for their buck with like strength training is like maybe two to three whole body workouts. And obviously then they gain size, they get in shape from that. And then the more advanced then, like say, we'll use bodybuilding example. People start going to the gym, they do overall body workouts. The more advanced then they get with their lifting, they actually need more stimulus on specific muscle groups. So then they don't train everything three times a week. They train individual muscle groups twice a week by hitting it more intensely. So they space it out further then. So maybe they're doing back and buys on one day and then on a Monday and then Thursday they hit it again, but they're not training chest. Then they train on Tuesday and then they train on Friday. So like kind of a split like that is like, it's, it's similar. Now explaining that then gave me a little rabbit hole of myself with this. So let's have some fun. So the counterpoint to this was then instead of doing overly specific early on, you then do a general over, overview and then keep on getting topping up and then get more specific as you go on. The then point is then there's always going to be gaps you're filling in. But then you then answered that earlier, saying the fact you're giving them free reign over certain areas, given the, for the one grip, for example, the one grip sparring, you're playing around with that. You're then filling in the gaps as such from there onwards. Because again, as much as it's, I don't know, you're, do you kind of get where I'm coming from with this? A sense of the, you're trying to be too specific, but you're also not, how do I explain it? Not yeah, trying to be too, go on. You probably. It's quite, quite paradoxical like where or contradictory yeah. where like you're saying don't be too specific but be specific be specific with it um so yeah yeah but i think as you get more advanced as well i wouldn't say like 
uh, a white or blue belt needs to have a game. They just need to learn everything. But then the more advanced you get, like purples and like brown belts, then you start to develop areas that you're going to be better in. And sometimes I think as the further you go down, I wouldn't say ignore your weaknesses, but sometimes you will have more success by doubling down on your strengths. So it's like Mikey has had a lot of success by being a Baron Bowler specialist. If he just went and flipped it around and was like, right, I'm just going to try and pass everyone's guard. Like he would probably, and he wasn't going to Bolo, then he would probably get beat by people you think wouldn't beat him. And I do think that sometimes like you need to be specific and tailored and work on these areas up to a certain point. And then sometimes you kind of just have to keep them at a good level and then um, like then work on your own strengths and implementing that at the elite level. That makes sense and it's kind of covered what you're kind of getting at. Yes and no. I mean, that point in itself is definitely very important in the sense of, okay, yes, if he wants to change up his game, he won't have the same success against guys he can beat and that you can develop certain areas, really double down, especially when it comes to that level. Where, okay, I'm getting the success. I'm getting the medals. I'm working on other stuff. This is what I'm going to do when it comes to competition. My initial point with this was more a sense of if you're trying to train, but also not get the FOMO of, okay, I'm working my De La Hiva, so but my spiders are lacking, my everything else is lacking. The, the concept I was sort of coming back from was more you covered that in the sense, okay, if we start from a certain grip, you're then given an opportunity with new stimulus to then react and then adapt to such. So instead of just having, okay, we're not doing De La Hiva as such, now we're doing open guard. So then you can then make it work and then adapt to such instead of making it too sort of narrow. Is that, is that what you meant? Is that if I've interpreted that right? Yeah, but I think, I guess you mean, like you're saying, like someone saying their spider is lacking and their delahevers and you mm. give them this very open situation and they can then go to their strength. Um, mm. But I think that then gives people with that kind of, I mentioned about that gold standard route of success of what they would deem is their, their favorite path and their best skill set towards a submission or towards that like checkmate position is you start there with that one grip where they don't have that Delaheva, but then they learn to within a situation where I guess you could say, say we use guard passing and your opponent has one grip on your gi pants and you have no grips on them on bottom. It gives you a way of understanding what they can do on top and how you can then get back to your, um, your gold standard game. So that kind of argument um, analogy I used is they're, posing a very very good argument to you and you have to then think of very very good counter arguments to get back to your your point then and winning that argument that makes sense so i'm going to try and butcher this and try and put my own name in sort of terms try and understand this but let's have a bit of fun um so again that was i thought it was two separate points i feel that the point I meant was more trying to keep your game well-rounded. Whereas your point I felt there was more get back to the A game, get back to whatever position you're in, then find where you need to get to, to get the win. Opposed to spending time to be specific about other techniques. Is that right? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess. So where I was thinking of like more, how can you get back to your game? And I think like maybe using that then as I guess like you could put, um, like banning your gold standard game within that sparring then. So where you've reflected with your journal on Sunday evenings, like, okay, 
my spider guard is lacking. When we do have these situational sparring this week, I'm not going to go to De La Hiva and I'm going to try and find spider guard. And it might not be let's try and sweep or do anything from there. It may actually just be let's get to it and see if we can hold and feel what actually playing spider guard feels like. Um, and it comes back to then, like, um, I guess some of the more advanced guys will speak to us about what they want um, in this bar in or like what they're trying to work on. Um, or like I'll speak to my coach and we'll like have some issues that we're trying to get to or certain things we're working on. And it's like then actually being smart with it. Like I'll have it and I have no problem like admitting it. It's like there'll be blue belts in the gym that will like, if I'm working a very specific area of guard or something like that, and like they'll be like past my guard or almost past my guard. But it's like that kind of not getting that foam of like so-and-so shouldn't pass my guard and they have. It's actually like, no, I was working on a very, very specific thing. So then when I do get good at this very specific thing and it, if that gives me like a level up and my overall game is a lot better then when we get back to actual free competition sparring is like, if I do end up in this worst position, I've got so many other options to get me back to a, a better position or better scenario, or I have a more threatening guard now because I can throw in Delaheva and a spider guard and keep it like that. Now that takes me to another interesting point there. So talking about Stoke philosophy and, you know, good old Ryan holiday, he goes the enemy and play on that sort of thing. Now, being a coach, being a competitor, being all this, that and the other, how do you feel being vulnerable in your class to then put yourself in these bad positions to, yes, I'm the coach, but now I want to work on an area I'm weak at. Do you feel you're comfortable in a sense of, I don't know, you, you allow yourself to be caught to then in the attempt to try something new? How do you find with that? Like a, because again, it's an interesting one to, come push to until push comes to shove because you sort of, okay, wait a minute something's telling me I should be sorting this out. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. Like, um, I always think of it as like, if someone drags me into position, then it's that kind of critical thing. And how did they get me to that position? And if it happens consistently, um, same as I guess like science, then it's like, if it's one person and they keep doing the same thing and it drags you, then it's quite easy to fix that problem. But then if you keep getting dragged into say, omoplatas from trying to pass guard and it happens with, a lot of different people, people who aren't quite as experienced as you and people who are different sizes, bigger, smaller, same size, then there's a different issue with that. And I wouldn't say let yourself get caught and try and figure it out. It's like reflect on it and then try and implement solutions to that. Um, but when I'm sparring, I very much like, I have no problem getting a day one white belt could walk in and tap me. Like, uh, I have no problem with that. And like, I'm obviously very playful with, the less experienced people and I'll like not so much like I'll just take my back, but if they do the correct things, then I'll see where they're going with it. And then it gives me time to work on it. Like I have no problem with that. And like, if I'm trying things, it's like, it's very much, I'd rather fail now in training than fail in competition when it really matters. So it's like, it's like very much like, I think tr like trying out things is really important. And like, um, you like I use the term a lot when, when I'm discussing with kind of like training partners and coaches is like, Oh, this technique is, it's got legs as in like, I've almost got this thing to work. And like, um, I always use it as like, can I get it on the blue belts? So I think like the white belts sometimes don't give you the correct reactions, but blue belts should know jujitsu by now. Like they should be giving you moving well and give you good reactions. So it's like, okay, can I get this to work on one of the blue belts? Okay. I worked on uh, a lightweight blue belt. Okay. Can I get a work on a heavyweight blue belt now? Yep. That worked. Okay. 
right, let's try on the purple belts now. And I work it up and like go through that. Okay, can I get it on the other brown belts? Yep, okay. Now can I get it on the black belts? And it's like using it like that. And it's usually, it's like one of the things, if I'm getting on the purple belts and brown belts, I'm like, this has got legs. This has got something. Let's try and see where it goes. Um, but then also the complete flip to that. If I try something, I'm like, this is going to work. I've got this nailed. And then next thing you know, a blue belt's just like, swept me over over their head and i'm just flat on my back on bottom mount i'm like yeah that didn't work (laughs) (laughs) and i've I've no problem with that because i'm just like okay it didn't work like so um which i I think like you don't want to be a training room hero how many people do you want like do you hear like that person's really good they're really good in the gym but as soon as they go to competition like i guess sometimes you have you have like the nerves and stuff with that but um like you don't want to be that person that's smashing everyone in like, and you build up this kind of false confidence. Like I smash everyone in the gym. No one ever taps me. No one does this. And you go to competition and someone does something you've never been in. Then you're like, okay, great. And that might be technique, but like, if you've never been, I guess like I use the swimming analogy. It's like, if you've never been in deep water, you're going to shit your pants when you get dragged into deep water. So it's like being able to be comfortable swimming in deep water is the, is the way I always think about it. And it's like, if that means getting, chucked in the deep end in training that's perfectly fine to fail there and then get better in competition and a really good book um that i liked is um principles by ray dalio and in that he has a thing of talking about what is success and success is um usually is like brought down to progress and um like you look at millionaires how many people who are millionaires and as soon as they get to like making a million they want to make two million and it's actually the true success is the progress to get to what you wanted as the goal and i'm the same with that and he broke down pro um progress as pain plus reflection so that might be physical emotional pain something like that a difficult situation and then reflecting on that and that then means that you progress and you trying to get those in training and getting put in those like difficult situations and reflecting on them is what's going to lead to progression. Um, and I'd much rather have that happen very frequently in training and progress a lot. So then when I do compete, I do then have the success that I want. Now there's so much in that to break down. <laughs> I love that. Um, let's play around with some of that. So I like the technique building with the sort of up the belts, adding the resistance, proper SNC sort of approach game programming. Okay. I've done X amount of reps against these sort of weight resistance and keep building and building and building it. Okay. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, so with the question in itself, it wasn't so much like, okay, I need to smash all the white belts, you know, can make a point because I'm really hard. That goes without saying, that's fine. <laughs> but more, more in a sense of like, okay, I'm in a competitive class. I want to make sure I'm pushing myself. I've got things coming up or whatever else. I mean, this is more specific when you're leading up to a comp directly, but more in the sense of, okay, I'm expecting to set an example. And again, it's more, I don't know. Because the difference between being playful, because again, this is always this weird thing about everyone's humble in jiu-jitsu until someone, oh no, they said they beat you, so they smashed you. Did they? And people sort of, you know, people charm every now and then. They're like, okay, everyone loves jiu-jitsu, but it gets a bit cold and people are like, don't like that very much. But here we are. That's another, that's another thing in itself. But <laughs> so that was more from that sort of side that when you're obviously coaching, competing, and then being able to split that mindset, that's the real sort of point I wanted to get onto was more, okay, this is a comp class. I'm going to go balls to I'm going to kill everyone. This is a beginner's white belt class. I'm not going to murder anyone. It's going to be nice and have fun. Um, and then that's sort of the divide in that kind of mindset. And I like um, that analogy of sort of pain and pleasure and sort of the deep waters from unknown waters as such. Cause again, that's a bit of a, 
think that's Carl Jung or it's um, Joseph Campbell, the sort of thing of the unknown water you don't know how to swim to you get in, that sort of idea that you're, you're not familiar with this, you've got no reference point. And there's, um, on the same sort of note of that, there's an Arthur Schopenhauer graph for, um, I think it's success or happiness, it's um, cha- challenge versus ability. And it's like a, like a y-axis, x-y-axis. And again, it's that kind of, you know, being tested enough that you're feeling fulfilled and challenged, but not too much you're overwhelmed or too little you're being bored. It's in the same sort of breath of that. It may not be about pain specifically, but more the sort of the stimulus. Again, the stimulus you're surrounded by is at a certain degree that it's challenging you without burning out. And then where else did this point go? Sorry, this, is, this became like six <laughs> different points. I'm trying to break down still. <laughs> trying to catch up. But uh, I don't know where we're all with this. Um, so let's go back to competition mindset then. So when it came to your, your classes themselves, is it the same Ben, so to speak, in these classes or each one a specific kind of, okay, now I've got to switch this on, I've got to be this, that and the other, or is it the same kind of, okay, I just have to change the intensity? Um, yeah, so, sorry about going off on so many tangents. No, it's no problem to... at all, I love it, man. Um, no, so like, um, I, th- there's definitely a difference in, um, I'll say like, we have some classes that we, like, we label as pro training, so it's more the guys that are going to take this serious, we're looking to compete at the elite level and push ourselves towards that. Uh, very much we come in and it's like, it's all business. It's like we have joking around and stuff, but as soon as the round timer starts, it's like head down. We're pushing like this is a very hard intensity. And my mindset is very much, I'm looking to pass with the very specific things there. I'm not looking to um, work on something in those. I'm looking to win rounds by implementing these kind of like concepts and principles that are my game and I'm like trying to, if someone poses a, a problem is then like trying to work on that and like beat that the same as any, any competition or like match or uh, sparring round is like, someone's going to give you an issue. You have to work that to how to win the round. And then potentially then in the evenings um, in our kind of like normal classes is like, the mindset is a little bit more jokey and stuff and I'm working on very specific things. And there could be exactly the same people in both classes, maybe a couple lower grades thrown in the mix in the evening classes. But um, it's like very much like there is like my time to be a little bit more playful, a little bit work on it. I know I've already trained and done my hard rounds, um, but that can even change within the session. Um, so like my coach Bryn, like sometimes we'll kind of just be there. We're getting our rounds in and some of the rounds we'll do are very much like, we're just seeing where these positions are going and what is happening. But then other times we'll kind of look at each other, give each other a nod. And it's like, we both know that this round is going to be, we're going to take each other's heads off for six minutes or 10 minutes. We're training for like the black belt matches or eight minutes for me as a brown belt, like whatever rounds we've got, like we'll sometimes give each other a nod of like, this round is a competition round. And we'll both be annoyed if we lose this round by an advantage, like, but the mindset is to try and win by all means or by any way possible. So it does change. And um, I think just being smart with it as well, um, just trying to make sure that you're not trying to take each other's heads off and bolster the wall all the time and do have those times of experimenting and working on things as well. I mean, there certainly is that balance of being able to switch on when you need to, because again, this is whole thing about being a, what is it, being a warrior in a garden, not a gardener in a, in a war. This sort of thing, okay, I've yeah. got it in me. I need to be able to show I can actually do this when I need to with a certain sensible people again people who are gonna put it on you but aren't gonna try and injure you like yeah they'll might yank things on this that and it, but no your best interest at heart as well on top of their own competitional sort of motivations but it's self there like there's something you said there i felt was very underappreciated 
that sort of joking around atmosphere, but being present, I feel that's so underappreciated in the sort of monotony of training and grinding all the time of being able to enjoy what you're doing. Like, I don't know. If you can't take the piss out of your training partners and have a bit of fun with it, you're in the wrong place, I feel. You've got to enjoy what you've got to do. Like, regards of your environment as such, do you find it's quite serious in a sense, or do you feel it's serious when it needs to be? You see what I mean? Um, I think we're all like our kind of like personalities and stuff. We're all kind of like joking around. We're all like similar ages. Like it's a big disparity in most jiu-jitsu clubs. There's a big disparity in ages, but like in the our like core group of like the hard training, like it's very jokey and messing around. And then we're all pretty good at like when it's time to put in the work, we're putting the work. Um, but yeah, it's like it's still very jokey. I think if you don't enjoy it, like and it becomes like a job and a chore, then sometimes it's a bit annoying. Um, but I just think like it's like being able to switch on and off between the two is what is important. Um, but it's like you said, like just being able to have fun with it. It's like, I always tell people at the beginners, they're like, Oh, like why, like what made you train jujitsu for so long? Other than like, obviously you have success in competitions and like jujitsu is very addictive in its nature. And like everyone has their own reasons for doing it. And I always just tell people, it's like not to remember why you started, like why you went to your first class is why you came back to your second. And it's not because you want to be a world champion. It's not because of like different things. It's like there was something in that first class that made you want to go again. And it's like just for keeping that kind of like fun, playful enjoyment of it as like a thing to keep going forward with it. Um, and we're all pretty good in training to like keep that like happiness and like enjoyment going. And I think as well, especially like the few sessions we've had like we're around all like the COVID stuff is like, it's not just the training. Obviously we have the mutual training and like everything to work towards a goal. And like, we don't have competitions at the moment. So it's like, we like, there's nothing really to focus on an end point. So it's just enjoying it whilst working hard so that when competitions do come around, but it's like the actual, just like chatting shit afterwards. It's that kind of like social thing. Like, just sitting on the mats and chatting shit. That's quite nice as well. Oh, it's the best part of the training, I feel. I love it. Like, obviously, the whole environment's there, but afterwards, you just sat there, like, after sparring, I'd take off the hand wraps there. Yeah, just absolutely roasting each other. Like, yeah. no one is safe. Oh, it's so much fun. And that's what you need as well. Now, on the note of sort of camaraderie in itself, something I really wanted to get you on to talk about as well was sort of the mental health side of sort of the martial arts environment. Again, the sort of... Because you put a really interesting video up about sort of body image and about how people sort of... That side of things. Now, on my first podcast, I had a boxer on, and he was telling me about this whole sort of story about his sort of body dysmorphia he got from, I don't know, managing weight from a young age, obviously being taught this sort of habits, this, that, and the other about food, and then progressively built this sort of, again, this sort of dysmorphia, this eating disorder. So when you put your post up, I thought it was very sort of poignant, because, you know, it was something I wasn't even that aware of. Again, everyone sort of, you know... <laughs> People could be a bit mean to one another, saying, "Oh, you're looking a bit chubby, enjoying your quarantine a bit too much, this, that, and the other." But it's more the real other side of that. So, is it something you've experienced quite a lot yourself? Then, um, I wouldn't say like too much myself, as in like people with me. But there's always like an internal dialogue, and I think like working um, like with like as a kind of like a nutritionist and strength conditioning coach mm-hmm. and helping people out with that. Like you always want to you are a selling point yourself as well. So always wanting to be in shape and understanding that. And then I think more as well, like, like actually having some really like deep discussions with friends and clients as well. Like some clients open up about things to me that like, you're like, wow. Okay. Like I can tell this is quite raw and 
Um, and that, the thing that drove like the discussion about that and why I wanted to post the video is I had a friend who spoke to me about it and like, I didn't realize he'd suffered from it because I thought he was quite a strong individual and that he actually would have suffered. And I was like, this is actually way more of a thing than like you actually think of being like having issues with that. And um, I don't think social media is beneficial for it, but you can use, I always think of social media as a tool. Like, so, um, but that's a different point. So like, we'll get there next. Don't worry. Yeah. So is like with the body image, like for me, like I've always gone through like, um, like stages where I'm like, I need to cut, I need to get stronger. Like I have goals. I want to get stronger and in this area and stuff, or like what weight class should I sit in? different federations like UAE should I go for 77 or 69 IBJF should I go lightweight or featherweight ADCC trials should I go for 77 or should I cut all the way down to 66 um it's like there's a lot of things with that and then um I think it's just one of those ones where like you are damned if you do and you're damned if you don't so it's like oh you go up a bit and you're like oh no like sometimes like people are fortunate and they'll like sit in a weight class and you're like this is the perfect weight class for me in this federation, but then you go to a different one and it's like completely gone to shit and you need to decide if you're going to cut or sit in this one a little bit lighter. But it's like, if you go up a weight class and you're in this one, you like, I would say up, you sit in that weight class anyway, but you don't have to cut for it or you only have to cut a little bit and you're like, Oh, maybe I'm like, maybe I could go down again. Like I don't feel strong in this weight class. Like, um, am I too weak? Am I too small? Like, Oh, should I cut? And then you actually cut then, down weight class and you're like i'm really skinny i don't feel good i hate dieting i'm not eating anything oh i need to get bulking again and then so i'll use me example like so i cut for adcc trials a while back and i ended up like just through crap scales i'd moved to rome i was living out there i didn't have like my good scales that i had in the uk i just had like crap scale and they were actually i ended up overcutting but i was really skinny like i was super skinny and i was like like look shredded i could put pictures on instagram and i'd be super lean i was like okay cool i feel it but then like my god my arms are noodly and stuff like that and then once i'd done that and then i was like competing out there a little bit and i was like trying to put on weight again and then it's like i'd go and have like loads of pizza and i'm like i'm looking soft i got like a little bit tub and it's like it's kind of you build up this like weird thing about your body image then and then you go through like vicious cycles of like Oh, I want to eat because I'm too skinny. And then you get a little bit soft. You're like, no, I need to go back down. And it's like this weird stuff. And like, I never had like eating disorders in the sense of like a diagnose, like oh, anorexia and stuff like that. But it's very much like, oh, I'm going to spa hard so I can enjoy some nice food after. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to like, or oh, I ate too much pizza today. I need to do, go and do a big run the next day, which then starts to become a bit of a problem in itself. So it's kind of like, I guess a milder form of anorexia on its way, but you never see it like that. And I think especially as a male, you just think I'm just training hard and eating well, but then you're actually becomes quite like debilitating sometimes where you're like, no, I can't go out for food with this because I haven't trained that much and things like that. And this is a conversation that I had with my friend. So he doesn't compete in a weight class sport. He just is a hammer thrower. He needs to be very strong and powerful. And then it's like, he has it two ways in the sense of like, Whereas mine was like an internal dialogue and a bit of a negative self-talk of like, you're looking too skinny. You're looking a bit soft here like that. His is an external thing, which then influenced the internal. So it's like he has his coaches telling him, you need to be bigger. You're too small to be a strong thrower. He was throwing good distances, but they still were telling him this. And then society then is telling him, 
you need to be skinnier. If you want to get like good looking girls on nights out, you need to look a certain way. And he's like, I want to be lean. I want to have abs and stuff like that. But then his coach is like, you're getting too skinny. So he's like, I need to eat more. And it builds up this very negative internal thing. And um, from that kind of, like I put that post up. So it would derive, I guess, discussions like this. Like, so people can use it as a tool to like, did you see that video but like Ben put up? Like, what are your thoughts on it? Or they send it to a friend. Like, they're like, actually, you know what? I've suffered from this. And I put that up and I had like people I never knew would have suffered from stuff reach out to me and be like, I suffered from bulimia, anorexia. I was like, you are a very, very strong individual. And that's like within um, jiu-jitsu, within MMA, within weightlifting, within certain things. And it's like, I definitely think that there is a, a big issue with it. And just being able to drive conversations to positively talk about it um, is really what's needed. And that was one of the main reasons I put that video out there. And I think that Jiu-jitsu is a very good sport for it in some senses, but also a very bad sport for it. Like, I think jiu-jitsu is great in that you have weight classes, so it's like no matter what size, shape, whatever you are, there will be a division for you that you can compete in. And obviously, you can then get healthier if you're overweight and lose weight and compete in a lighter weight division. But then sometimes people are always trying to get that 1% and by like, cutting down further and further so it's like it's good that doesn't matter what you are you can compete and enjoy and have the benefits and the feeling of like challenging yourself but also then martial arts then can like you, if you compete in a weight class sport you can it can be a bad thing sometimes where you think you have to compete in a lower weight class um but i do think there is a benefit of going through challenging things and like sparring you go through difficult times in sparring and being able to and this is where it comes back to the critical thing is like i've gone through 10 rounds with a black belt and i'm still alive so this difficult situation in life that isn't a physical thing that can't hurt me i can then sit back think about it and try to work towards overcoming it um yeah, well, so, out, again, I don't know when you finished or not, because again, yeah. it's just that weird sort of bit with sort of, yeah, I mean, it's a really powerful thing in itself. And it's the irony in that is social media, the tool that causes all this sort of grief and internal sort of struggle is the same one that shared that same message. So again, yeah, no, again, it comes to that the whole, again, there's a lot, of, a lot of conflicting things in this. And that's the nature of why things are so complex. Because again, it's like weight, weight cutting sports is cutting x amount of weight overnight for a competition for a couple of quid medal worth it probably not but do you feel benefit do you feel mentally better mentally stronger pushed further by having gone through that struggle now is that a good or a bad thing and again it's, it depends it's objective like we said about the world about bad weather it's subjective it's very much like okay is um getting potentially injured in sparring a good or a bad thing well i'm improving as a whole but i might get some injuries was it good or bad? Depends. Yeah. And then we go on to the whole sort of, I think a huge point with your post there, I think I took from it as well, the whole highlight again, I'm like, it's more relationship with food. And again, when it comes to the nature of what you're saying there, you cut all this weight, you're ripped up to pieces and sat in the with noodle arms. You think I need to put size on. And then as soon as you lose the abs, you feel, okay, what happened to the same person a minute ago wanted to put size on? Again, this whole, these conflicts keep coming back up again. And it's a bit close to home with noodle arms. That's why, you know, 
that's fine but you know on your podcast and salt your body that's fine <laughs> <laughs> that's another conversation but no it's more the sense of okay there's a very fickle kind of i don't know values as such because they change so quickly so then the, the priority then being skin the priorities then being you know swole being this that and the other and it's the thing is with is aristotle what is that i'm trying to get all fucking pretentious now i think it's aristotle <laughs> so you values where you um like put it essentially the gist of it that again that this isn't a big deal until you realize oh it's a big deal you know no, it's a big deal it's a really big deal like, okay now now i need these abs that aren't a thing anymore and then again this whole balancing of like food management the concept of a diet like i'm not sure are you a fan of james smith pt i know he's a bit controversial like he's had um his book out and it's it's an interesting one and yes but, go on as i say i haven't read his book um but like i think it's the same as like his posts more are like he does have good points and he does understand what he's saying he does get a very good message across with his points but it's more that it is like a tool to drive conversations um and like it's something you're saying like uh, get back to where you're on about like oh these abs are important and stuff like that and it's like um i actually did a an instagram live with annie marshall talking about that post that i'd made and we came to the conclusion that it ultimately comes down to self-talk and like there's like little internal conversation you have with yourself so i use myself an example where it's like oh, i want abs i'm shredded okay cool like i've made this weight class perfect like and a bonus is that i'm really lean and then it's like okay, I don't need to be in this weight class anymore. Now I'm getting a little bit softer, but I want my abs back, but I do want to get bigger. And it's like, there's me as a strength conditioning coach, as a, someone who works with people's nutrition and someone who's very academic and knows the science behind all of that. It's like, I know that's not a bad thing. And we talked about like the self-talk and that negative self-talk and how to like overcome that. And it's very much like, you need to look at it from, what if it what if it was like the other way around like if or a friend came to you if you came to me and you were like oh ben i really want abs but then now i feel too skinny and my arms are too noodly i want to get bigger and it's like okay like let's get bigger then you start getting bigger i'm looking soft now like like i kind of want my abs back it's like one of those things like i sit down right dan like we need to like we know that being lean 24 7 365 days a year isn't conducive to putting on like size to building, like to having muscle hypertrophy and then also getting stronger. It's not conducive to that. Being in a calorie deficit is not going to benefit that. So we need to be in a calorie surplus. And you're like, right, okay. And you talk to me about it and then you build up, you feel a little bit better about the situation. And um, I always think of it as like trying to improve that negative self-talk is like, what would you say to a friend? If a friend came to you, like, so say like, yeah, like exactly. say you come to me, Look at that. I'm like, shut up, mate. Like, come on now. Like, you're not skinny. You're not like overweight. Like, you've just had some pizza and you're looking a little bit watery just because you've eaten a load of like salty food. So it's like, it's like, it's like, like, but that's, that's a lot of it as well. It's like, usually it's like you have a cheat meal. You look a little bit like, like inverted commas, like soft the next day. And it's because you've had a load of salt and beer or something like that and not a lot of water and your body's just retained a bit of water you get back training and back to a normal diet and you look fine again. And usually sometimes like when you are around yourself all the time, you don't see the bigger picture. And like, it just comes back to that. What would you say to a friend? And it's like, you would say, just shut up, mate. You're going to be fine. Just like you've had a bit of pizza. Don't worry about it. And um, yeah, I think just trying to like 
prove that negative self-talk is a big thing, but it is a very difficult thing to do. And I think like videos like I put up some of the stuff, James Smith, BD put up the, um, I've gone blank with his name, the documentary, Freddie Flintoff, his like kind of documentary about his bulimia. Like you might not gain anything from watching it, but you maybe get a better perspective of it, but then it drives talks about it. And I think men especially are very bad at talking about these sensitive areas and these, these kind of subjects with it. Like I think girls are very good. Like, did you see Adele's weight loss? Like all this. And then something might come out like, Oh, Adele's got an eating disorder potentially. Like the, not saying she has, but like mm. something like that. And girls are very good at like talking about that and be like, oh, I'd like to lose weight. Oh, she looks great shape. I want to do that. And things like that. Whereas men are very much not at all like that. Like, they're not going to come in and be like, do you see Freddie Flintoff saying? And they're like, oh yeah, I kind of saw it. And then he's like, do you ever struggle with that? And they're like, oh, shut up, man. I don't talk about that. It's like, I think it needs to be used as a tool to open discussions about certain things like that. Um, and it's the same with like, um, I put a post about women and strength conditioning hmm. and like women need to do that and things like that. And more is then like for women to then talk about that. It's like, I don't care whether 10 people or 10,000 people see it, but if one person benefits from it, it's great. And if it opens conversations for people, um, it's always going to be a good thing. And more that if someone is having that negative self-talk, can they use something like a post like that to then like to talk to someone who, who might be struggling or to then better handle their own negative self-talk? Again, there's so much in that to go through and I love it. <laughs> Um, where, where do we start with this? Up some fun. So, just to mention Jordan Peterson again, why not? Up some fun. So, one of his rules in his book is treat yourself like you're someone you're responsible for looking after. And then the same sort of premise you were getting now with um, if someone else said this to you, I had this conversation with the English hypnotist as well about say your internal voice you say to yourself, would you say that to a younger sibling, a younger something? Because no, because it's pretty nasty, it's pretty horrible. With that and the other, it's quite you know, why would you put someone down that way? And the whole concept of we're used to being self-detrimental as a sense of being polite or being modest, which isn't the same thing. <laughs> it was really not. Yeah. And the whole balancing and like relation, balancing food, balancing relationships, and which bit I was going to get as well as quite a few things. Oh, I've lost my train of thought. Okay, so <laughs> I got the um, someone you look at, responsible for looking after. That was the main one. Yeah. Um, there was. I was going to really me. Okay, so we're playing around with a few things, eating disorders. The conversations, okay, this is, we'll go, we'll go around this way around. So we were saying about the conversations about with the, the way women can speak about these things, the way these things happen more organically, the way these conversations happen versus the way that men have these conversations. Now, the whole thing with the mental health, like International Mental Health Day or whichever wording it was, the reason why these conversations, I feel, don't seem to have as much weight as they need to is it almost the delivery and the way it's going about? Because again, if you ask someone outright, how are you doing? They're going to say, yeah, I'm fine. But before they even finish you saying it, they know you, that's your automatic response. But it's the way you said that in itself. I, I wouldn't imagine anyone else being that direct about, is that something you've been struggling with? I wouldn't have, it's very rare you get people that direct with it. They're sort of wishy-washy. And again, it's, I feel this is the extra layer that's been missed in just general parlance when it comes to conversations about mental health as a whole. Like there's more specific instances because again, would you class this as a mental health thing? I'd argue it is. Cause again, it's a very internal thing that's going on in your head that's then generating this relationship with the food. And on top of this, this is the point I was going to as well. 
was that what gave your post just as much if not more weight was the fact of your background being very much i am matter of fact i'm numbers i'm i know what i'm talking about i'm qualified and i still get the same kind of thing this is still on the radar because again it's not a case of oh i don't know because again you get someone who's not even a gym layman someone doesn't even exercise they think okay i want to get abs i'm not i'm not happy with the way i look and if you told them well if you're qualified you were a brown belt in jiu-jitsu you know this that and the other would you feel more confident and more this that and the other I said yeah 100 percent would seem okay and then they see you saying the same sort of thing and this isn't exclusive to anyone this is a very it's a very personal thing and on top of that in itself like nlp and the whole like neurolinguistic program in the sense of what you talk to yourself it's a very interesting and very powerful thing because you'll say quite flippantly a lot of things about yourself i will oh, try and be modest and to go in a bit more on this the sense of being your own hype man and like even if it comes across quite arrogant externally internally absolutely love yourself even if you don't mean it. if you the louder you say it in yourself you fucking believe it it's a wonderful thing and again i'm quite skeptical of this kind of stuff i'm a bit like glass half empty with that but it's something I've been doing since speaking to a Ming hypnotist that's really made, I don't know, makes you appreciate things a lot more. So with all that being said there, then when it comes to your management with clients, nutrition and everything else, is there something you can do proactively you feel you could do if you're not already doing to then, I don't know, encourage these kind of conversations from a more professional point of view from not necessarily just from you specifically, but from, personal trainers in general from that sort of from, not from you being a personal trainer but you from you know a coaching role that side of that, that side of things english words i have a podcast I can't speak. <laughs> uh, no like it's it's very difficult from i guess like a coaching um standpoint to open up and like because people might not be suffering from them or they might not want to open up to you about them but it's like giving them the roots to like open up these dialogues is what i always try and do so um i very much like a numbers based like way that i track with people so like kind of the various macros that they're eating the calories they're consuming their weight how much water they're drinking how much sleep they're getting and then how they're feeling as well and just some notes on that um and sometimes you can tell and then usually like when i check in with clients um like they'll check in with me like every week and it's like just sending a message like, how are you feeling? How's this week? What problems have you had? And most of the time, like, they're not too bad, like too many problems. But like, it's usually that initial time is like, you can, whatever is discussed between us is kept between us. And just building up that like buy-in is the, the hardest thing. And just making sure that you are um, like getting that across is the biggest thing. And like, I think putting, for me, putting up posts like I did and showing that like, you may come to me with these issues and I may have all these like bits of paper that tell me I know X, Y, and Z and like any letters after my name, it's like, it doesn't matter. I'm still human. I still suffer the same. It's just, I may have a better understanding of why we're like, I am having these struggles. So if you are having these struggles, feel free to approach me about them. And I want to put that post up and people I don't work with approach me. Like I was more than happy just to sit and talk to them about it because it's a route for them to do that. And with my clients is just making sure that they know that they have a route to talk about that. If they choose to, it's like, they don't have to, if they don't want to, um, it's completely on to them. Cause some people they're like, maybe I do have an issue, but I don't want to talk to them. And I think if you 
hammer away at it at people, sometimes there's just like defenses straight up and like they shut off from you. Don't know you, you're a dickhead. Don't, don't approach that. So it's just giving them the route to do that. And it's like, there's only so much you can help people until they want to help themselves and just making sure that they have a, a path to help themselves um, and however you can facilitate that is probably the biggest thing. And that doesn't have to be like from a coach. It could be from a friend, um, um, a training partner, whatever. It's like, just like if people know that they can approach you about that and you are open to discussing it, then, then positive things can happen. Um, and that in itself is so important to build that rapport and build that sort of trust. Cause again, some people are more open than others when it comes to talking about this stuff. And again, not everyone is open to, again, the, that depth of conversation with someone, even if it's someone they know. But again, what you've highlighted is that the most important point in all of this, from all of everything we've spoken about, is, is that down to them to then reach out and then have that conversation. We, if, if you want to help someone, you can do everything you can to give them a platform, but it's then to then take that step to then either open up or do what they need to do. And it's a really frustrating and very hard thing to really have when you're that person who wants to help someone else. But it's just the truth. You can give them the ladder, but they can't take the wrong until, <laughs> until they do it themselves. Yeah. And on that note, my friend, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you on the old social media? Uh, so my personal is uh, at SpudJitsu on uh, Instagram. And then my coaching page for SNC is um, at un- unorthodox underscore performance. Um, and there's just unorthodoxperformance.co.uk for anything with that. And then Ben Robson on Facebook and yeah, if anyone did like those posts or anything, feel free to reach out with me and discuss those further. I'm more than happy to have a, a chat about anything. And I believe you have your own podcast as well, which I've been listening to on Spotify. Is it on all platforms? Uh, I can't remember what's on now. It's on Spotify 100%, um, an Orthodox Performance podcast. So I haven't got one out for a while. Uh, just been a very busy potato getting a lot of other projects done and things in many pies, but hopefully we'll see a return of it soon. Awesome.